This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Joshua Max Feldman about his debut novel, The Book of Jonah. Then PW News Editor Claire Swanson will tell us about PW's new Meet the Editor article series. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So on the fiction side, we've got a few new books on the list, in the fiction hardcover list. Uh, at number four, we have Anna Quinlan's Still Life with Breadcrumbs. This is her seventh novel. Uh, the PW Review says it's a detailed exploration of creativity and the need for connection. It features a 60-year-old photographer who was once revered as a feminist icon, but whose work isn't selling as briskly as it used to. Her marriage falls apart, and she ends up renting a cabin in the country, needing some space, uh, as well as the money she gets from renting out her New York City apartment. We say that Quindlin has always excelled at capturing telling details in a story, and she does so again in this quiet, powerful novel showing the charged emotions that teem beneath the surface of daily life. So that's at number four on the fiction hardcover list. And number 10 is Robert Harris's An Officer and a Spy. We gave this a starred review. We said it's easily the best fictional treatment of the Dreyfus affair yet. Uh, a gripping thriller told from the vantage point of a French army officer who's present on the day in 1895 that Alfred Dreyfus is publicly degraded as a traitor to his country before being exiled to Devil's Island. What a great name. And we say Harris perfectly captures the rampant anti-Semitism that led to Dreyfus's scapegoating and Effectively uses the present tense to lend intimacy to the narrative. So they uh, did a first print run of 100,000 copies for this, and it looks like it's justifying those uh, high right. hopes. Always nice to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So again, that's number 10 on our fiction hardcover list. And number 18 is Isabel Allende, her new novel, Ripper, which is translated from the Spanish by Oliver Brock and Frank Wynne. Um, we say she successfully tries her hand at a mystery, which features an unlikely team of sleuths who have been united by an online mystery game named after Jack the Ripper, the infamous Whitechapel murderer. So it stars a high school senior, her grandfather, a New Zealand boy who has an online persona of a gypsy girl named Esmeralda, and a 13-year-old boy with a high IQ who calls himself Sherlock Holmes. And uh, they end up investigating real-life crimes Mm. in the present day. Uh, We say that uh, this genre outing isn't as memorable as her more groundbreaking literary fiction, but her facility with plotting and pacing will keep readers turning the pages. And Allende is about to embark on a seven-city tour to support the book. 
Great. And finally, uh, one note, we didn't review this title, but it's always interesting to see a tie-in novel show up uh, high on the list. At number 21 on the fiction hardcover list mm-hmm. is Joe Schreiber's Lockdown, uh, which is a Darth Maul book that ties into Star Wars. And it's uh, just a good reminder that tie-in fiction is incredibly popular, and hardly anybody talks about it. Right, yeah. And I think I remember there was something similar about, uh, uh, I don't know if it was the same all the Princess Leia, we had one on the mm-hmm. list. Uh, so that's that's pretty interesting. We see in nonfiction some tie-in with games every once in a while. Mm-hmm, uh, absolutely. With video games. So that's yeah, you know, video game novelizations are also right. really, really big. Uh, as, as a science fiction fan, every once in a while I look up and say, oh, I haven't seen anything from my favorite author for a while. And I, I look them up and it turns out they've been doing Halo tie-ins. That's exactly it. Right. right. And, yeah. um, and there are some incredibly good authors writing these books and um, they're very very popular with fans of these games yeah in nonfiction, last week's number one book, Duty, Memoirs of the Secretary of War, is still at number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's by uh, former Secretary of Defense uh, Robert M. Gates. And I uh, just want to say that book in the last two weeks has sold 144,000 copies. Wow. Uh, and uh, so that's continuing to do really well. Uh, at, at number two is the Love Playbook, Rules for Love, Sex, and Happiness, a uh, self-help book by... Uh, Lala Anthony. Now, Lala is, uh, many people will know her from VH1's hit series, Lala's Full Court Life. Uh, she's an actress, uh, TV personality, and she is the uh, wife of NBA star Carmelo Anthony from uh, uh, New York Knicks. And uh, it's written with Karen Hunter, who has uh, been a writer for several New York Times bestsellers, including biographies of Wendy Williams, Chris Jenner, Janet Jackson, LL Cool J. So once again, this is a... Uh, Kind of a self-help book from uh, Celebra. Next up, at number six, another self-help book. This is Soul Healing Miracles. Ancient and new sacred wisdom, knowledge, and practical techniques for healing the spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical bodies by Ji Gang Sha. Uh, this is uh, published by Ben Bella Books, and he's a, uh, a soul leader, according to his uh, biography, a uh, uh, world healer, a master healer um, from uh, China. And uh, this Ben Bella book is number six on our list. So a few more uh, self-help books this season. All right. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Joshua Max Feldman will explore the spiritual experiences of a New York lawyer. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Joshua Max Feldman on the line. He's the author of The Book of Jonah, in which a lawyer's visions lead to unexpected revelations. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your book. This is your first novel, right? This is my first novel. It's the product of uh, several years of work, but I couldn't be more excited to have it out and have the opportunity to share it with the reading public. Uh, very broadly speaking, it's a modern reimagination of the biblical story of Jonah and the whale. And so what is it about the book of Jonah that, that inspired you to write the book and to cast a lawyer uh, such as Jonah, or should I say Jonah as a lawyer? Well, the biblical book of Jonah has always fascinated me. I think ever since I first encountered it, which is probably as a third grader in Hebrew school, 
I, I think the book of Jonah is an uncommonly human book. It presents a very uh, funny and nuanced view, in my eyes, uh, with regards to the relationship between uh, humanity and the divine. This is a book in which uh, God speaks to an ostensible prophet, tells Jonah, go deliver this prophecy, and Jonah basically runs screaming in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So there was something in that which I found very compelling and very relatable. I think it's a very uh, plausible and human response to a sort of divine intervention in one's life. And that was really the kernel that I started with as I was writing the novel. And so tell us a little bit about the character of Jonah in your book, and what is he battling or, or actually exploring? Well, Jonah is a very worldly person. I wanted to make him, intentionally made him a very worldly character. He's very caught up in uh, his career. He's very ambitious. He's balancing some complications, his love life. And he really is um, not someone who thinks a lot about anything beyond the day-to-day. And what eventually starts happening to him is he has these very strange visions, which he comes to include are divinely inspired. And under the pressure of these visions and his reactions to them, uh, the world around him slowly starts to fall apart. He just can't balance what's happening to him and uh, the life he had been leading. And so who is the whale here? Or the big well, fish, or how, however, <laughs> however it is. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to make a literal whale because that would be somewhat difficult in a somewhat realistic novel to do. Uh, to me, you know, that symbol of or that image of a person being swallowed by a giant fish is so resonant. And even people who have no familiarity with the Bible in general really know that image. And I think there's something about it we can all somehow relate to: the idea of being uh, swallowed up by circumstance, completely overwhelmed by what's happening in our lives, and that's really the whale I tried to put in the novel. I tried to show Jonah reaching a certain point of feeling uh, completely caught up and powerless um, because of the things that have happened to him. And in the biblical narrative, it's at that point when Jonah is in the belly of the giant fish that he's able to change his behavior and change the attitude towards what he's been asked to do. And I tried to echo that in the novel and have at this point of Jonah's sort of lowest moment, that's the point where he can finally uh, take a different approach to what's been happening to him. So with such an allegory, I would have expected Jonah to travel to, say, Jerusalem. Instead, he goes to Amsterdam. <laughs> why, why there? Um, I wanted to take, pick a place that it would be plausible for a character like Jonah, a young lawyer from New York, uh, where would he go if he was looking to escape? And I think uh, in the minds of Americans, Amsterdam has, for a number of reasons, um, it evokes the idea of a place that's sort of tucked away, a place to relax, and I think it's what Jonah's really looking for in choosing Amsterdam is the opposite of New York City, and that's why he chooses to flee there. And what is the opposite, what does Amsterdam have that is the opposite of New York City? Well, you know, New York, to me, is such an ambitious place, such a hard-driving place, and Amsterdam, to me, is, in the times that I've been there, I used to live in Europe for a couple of years, and I visited Amsterdam several times, and like many European cities, but I think Amsterdam in particular, there's just a different attitude towards daily life. There's not the sort of uh, daily, hard-driving character to the city, and there's much more of a placid uh, feeling to it. And I also thought because of the canals in Amsterdam, it's obviously uh, the aquatic imagery sort of fits those sort of broader uh, imagery around the Book of Jonah, which I was bringing in from the Bible. So did it have anything to do with Jonah's visions and hallucinations? 
Well, I think at that point, Jonah has realized that there's just no escaping these visions. He just can't continue on with his life as it had been. Uh, these, these visions just won't leave him alone. And really what it was to me was showing Jonah having a sort of moral awakening. He can't just rationalize away the things that he's been able to rationalize away in terms of his own behavior, in terms of things called, the things he's called on to do in his job. So it's really at that point that he decides, I, I just can't take this anymore, and basically as I said, run screaming from what his life had been. So how do Jonah's romantic and sexual entanglements affect his story? Now, you, there is a, a person with whom he crosses paths, and that's uh, Judith uh, Bulbrook. Tell that's us right. about her. Tell us about the character. Sure. Uh, Judith is sort of a version of someone, a lot of the people I went to high school with. I grew up in a very academically focused town and went to a very uh, high school that was really emphasized high academic achievement. And Judith is someone who takes the idea of being an overachiever to a whole other level. She's very focused on school and someone who really believes that if she does well academically, if she gets into the right college, that her life will sort of fall into place. And what I was trying to do in the book is show different kinds of faith. Jonah has a particular kind of faith in his job and his career, and Judith has that sort of um, academic faith, that sort of high achievement faith that, you know, through hard work, uh, she sort of promised a, a comfortable life. But unfortunately, life doesn't work out that way, and it doesn't work out that way for her in the novel. Now, in the Jewish tradition, the Book of Jonah is associated with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Are there themes of atonement running through this book as Jonah finds his way? Well, I, I never really thought of it that way, actually. That's a great point. I, I don't think there's necessarily the idea of atonement. I'm certainly not trying to hold Jonah up to any sort of judgment and say, look at the terrible things he did. I want this to be a character who uh, we can recognize in our daily lives. I think Jonah is just someone who, in order to attain a certain degree of success, uh, he's made some decisions that maybe deep down inside he knows are not the right decisions, but he's willing to live with them because they make his life comfortable in different ways, they give him the success he's looking for. And it wasn't so much a torment that I was looking to show with him as much as uh, a sort of new insight into those decisions and an inability to ignore the compromises he had made. Is the book primarily intended for a Jewish audience, or, or do you think other people will connect to the story? Oh, I certainly hope it's everyone or anyone can connect to the story. I mean, I don't think of it as a Jewish novel. I don't think of it as a religious novel. I think of it as a human novel. And really what I'm trying to explore are two characters, Jonah and Judith, who have experiences that just fall far outside the boundaries of what they'd ever expected from their lives. And I think that's um, a uh, something we've all experienced, regardless of our religious background and regardless of the nature of that experience. I think life just confronts us with things that uh, we really were never prepared for. So ultimately, after Amsterdam, uh, Jonah goes to Las Vegas. So tell us about that move and, and uh, uh, what inspired him to, to move from Amsterdam to Vegas. Well, in the biblical story, Jonah is sent to the city Nineveh on the other side of the ancient world. And he's told that it's a very corrupt city and that he's told that if he doesn't uh, deliver this prophecy, preach against it, that the city will be destroyed. So I tried to think of a city that would evoke that same sort of, um, uh, let's say, uh, shady atmosphere. And Las Vegas, I think, in the American imagination is very much the city where we think of um, sort of, for, you know, fairly or unfairly, it's a city that's often associated with, um, let's say, last morals. Sin City. <laughs> Sin City, exactly. So Jonah goes there um, 
really to sort of fulfill what he's decided is his mission, but uh, I hope to show there again that there's a certain amount of ambiguity about it. deciding to do right and doing right can often, can often be very different things. So you grew up in the Northeast, as you mentioned. Um, you went to Columbia University, and uh, now you're in Florida, um, though at the moment we're talking to you in New York. So what took you to Florida, and how, how does that warm climate affect your writing? <laughs> Uh, well, the reason I'm in Florida is that my wife got a job down there, so we moved, made the move about a year and a half ago down to Florida. I'd like to think the warm climate has a very positive effect on my writing. It's you know, it's, you can always refresh yourself with a nice walk outside. Uh, I, I think of myself though as a New Yorker in my heart, and one nice thing about New York is that it always provides uh, great material when you walk out the door. There's just such energy and madness that uh, it's always easy to feel inspired. And uh, living in Florida, were you writing this novel while you were living in Florida and, and writing about New York City? A little bit. The novel was mostly done by the time I moved down to Florida, so there was just a final edit on it. But I do think it can be, when you look at a place in the rearview mirror, I think it can be easier to write about it. it once you're in the, when you're in the midst of it, it can be a little harder to have that separation you need to pick out the details and to really see the place for what it is. So I think that experience of living outside New York uh, allowed me to, you know, do those sort of finishing touches. And certainly the other settings in the, play, settings in the book, uh, Las Vegas and Amsterdam were not places I was living uh, when I was writing about them. Right. We've been talking with Joshua Max Feldman, and you can find his first book, The Book of Jonah, in stores right now. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Editor Claire Swanson takes us to Meet the Editor. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, PW News Editor Claire Swanson is here to give us the scoop on PW's Meet the Editor article series. Hello, Claire. Hi, guys. So, so what is Meet the Editor? Meet the Editor is a series we started in earnest about in November, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of just take a look at the people behind the books um, that we're reading. So it's the editors. We just go in and do a profile of them and what they're acquiring and sort of how they arrived at their, you know, in the, to the book industry. And um, yeah, we've done four so far and our fifth will publish on Monday. So who are we doing these profiles of? Is it, is it young editors, established yeah. editors? We're trying to make it as diverse as possible. So, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'll be writing one on the editor-in-chief of Kensington, who's been there for 22 years. And, you know, others are young editors that are just kind of finding success in the business now. And we try to do, you know, the big houses and Harper and um, Random House we've covered and uh, also smaller presses like Grey Wolf. So we're trying to keep it diverse and, and interesting to all audiences. And what are we learning from these editors? I mean, is it just sort of tell us about your life? Is yeah. it? Um, well, I, we sort of, you know, how, how they grew up and and what role books played in their life from a young age and sort of what drove them to the book industry and, and why editorial, you know, a lot of them started off and wanted to write and decided to go to sort of the trade side of things and then sort of what they've done in their career um, and maybe a little bit about publishing philosophy and acquisition and, you know, their sensibilities in that way. What makes for a good story? What do they look for? How do they know when a book is right? That sort of thing. 
So they give a little bit of uh, feedback as to what kinds of books they're looking for. Yeah. They talk about what they usually acquire. Mm-hmm. I wonder if any of them go into uh, uh, to talk about the kinds of proposals they like to get and what they don't like to get. Yeah. You know, they, they talk about what's successful for them, what grabs right. their eye. Um, you know, we try to hear about, you know, what their three favorite books are or, um, you know, what was their proposal that almost got away, you know, that nail-biting moment, sort of what it's like to be an editor, what they're looking for, and, and sort of what, what their passions are. And I think that's, it's just nice to have a little more personality on the page, you know, in addition to everything else we cover in the industry. So who are the people behind the books we're reading? And so these run every two weeks? Um, Yep. Uh, We're trying to do twice a month. Great. Yep. And can you tell us a little bit about who we've already covered? Sure. Our first one was uh, Claire Wachtel, and she's uh, an executive editor at Harper. And, you know, one of her big successes was uh, Freakonomics, Mm, um, which is kind of a phenomenon. Um, As I said, Gray Wolf, um, the executive editor there, Jeffrey Schatz, who we profile filed when he was fresh off his NBA win for Mary Shebus and Carnadine Poetry Collection. Mm. Uh, Lindsay Sagnett, senior editor at Crown, and she is the editor of Gone Girl. So again, another publishing phenomenon. Right. And uh, Joshua Kendall, he's editorial director at Mulholland Books, which is uh, one of the newer imprints at Little Brown. And Monday's magazine will feature uh, Dan Smetanka. I'm apologizing if I'm butchering that. He's the executive editor at Counterpoint Press right. on the West Coast. That's right. Yes, yeah. I remember. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. And how long are these usually? Uh, you know, they range like that short future length, uh, 900 words, 800 words around there. Yeah, just so we can cover a bit about uh, where they've been and where they're going. And will readers be interested in these profiles, or is this really just, you know, inter- industry gossip, insider stuff? Yeah, you know, I think that there is some usefulness for the industry-facing audience, and, you know, it's what these editors are acquiring, but they're really human stories about, you know, why they love books, what their mothers read to them, and, and, mm-hmm. and how is that influencing what they're acquiring, which influences the industry at large, and, and it's the books that people are buying online or reading on their Kindle or going and picking up off a shelf. Like, you know, it starts somewhere. And I think that's why, you know, for the consumers that read PW, I think it, you know, it, it brings a bit of a, you know, a humanity to the industry. I think it's interesting in that respect. And as someone who's always been interested by book editing, I mean, I do freelance editing just on the manuscript side, but mm-hmm. I don't know anything about the business side of it. Do they talk about how they balance the actual hands-on editing with the business part of acquisitions, of talking the company into buying a book and all of that? Yeah, I, and I, they talk about their editorial process for sure. Um, when I uh, interviewed uh, John at, at Kensington, you know, he talked about he's a bit of a blend of old and new, how he edits on paper, and then switches to, you know, elect, you know, digital editing at some point. I think that there's a lot about how publishing houses kind of work in, in as an orchestra, you know, like teaming up with publicity departments and design departments and how a book comes to fruition. And it isn't just them, but, it, you know, what their role in that is. And so it is about what they look for, but it's also, you know, how do they do it? How do they bring it into being? Well, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, we're excited about it and to keep it going. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Well, Claire, thank you so much for talking to well, us about thank it. Thank you for having me. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 